You're listening to the Irish Times. In keeping with the slightly surreal nature of the world, today we are going to start today's Out of Time podcast all of a sudden. Later on, actually, we're going to have Ross Whitaker, a documentarian, on to talk about his documentary and the Charlton years that's on RTE tonight. But uh, we're going to go straight into it here with Gavin Komsky and Jerry Thorny. How are you, lads? Good, thank you. And you? Uh, it's all kind of mad. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't really know where everything stands. On the face of it, if you look at the Six Nations table, everything is beautifully poised. Uh, and yet, uh, we're sitting here on Monday morning. There's meetings going on in France. We think it looks pretty likely that the Ireland-France game this weekend is not going to go ahead. And we think it's all going to finish up in October. That was always the likelihood, really, all along. And so it seems as if it's going to come to pass, most probably today. Um, um, it was quite surprising that the French Federation came out with such a bullish statement on Friday night as they did to say Mm. that this game is going to go ahead between Ireland, that's France-Ireland. It's going to go ahead in the start of France. It's not going to be behind closed doors. Um, It's definitely on. Like late on Friday evening, it just in, in an ever-changing, ever-evolving story and narrative, it just seemed odd that they were so I must bullish. say, at any stage listening to the news, no matter if it's wherever it is in the world over the last couple of weeks, uh, anybody that has a definitive statement, I'm immediately suspicious yes, of. It's impossible. <laughs> this is all out of sports control. It's yeah. got nothing to do with what the position at the table and who's going for what and whether France are going for a Grand Slam next Saturday or not. There are just far, far bigger issues at stake. And to see um, Emmanuel Macron and the entire cabinet sitting around a table last night uh, in the Champs-Élysées and for Macron to come out and say there's going to be no gatherings of more than 1,000 people put a serious question mark over the France-Ireland game unless of course they're games of national importance you could argue it's a national team therefore it's of national importance but I think the French um, Ministry of Health and Sports have been in hourly contact with all the sports federations throughout last week and are meeting them again this morning and all the indications are that this Ireland-France game is going to be cancelled and called off and the Italy-England game is gone already, so maybe the, the Scotland-Wales game will go and the, the, the last round of fixtures will be put back to the last weekend of October with Ireland at home to Italy in the week beforehand. But October seems like the only viable date in the basis that a, a vaccine will then have been found in the interim and this coronavirus um, spread can be contained in any way, shape or form and therefore it might be able to take place as normal in October or if not failing that, then maybe behind closed doors because the Six Nations, for the integrity of the tournament and for world ranking points in a year when it's going to be a World Cup draw at the end of the no- after mm-hmm. November test, they will desperately want these games to go ahead. But uh, it's, uh, it's, I don't think it's, going to, it's not going to happen before the end of October. I have friends um, living in, in Paris and in, and in the south of France and they're saying that the handling of it by the health system over there is excellent. Right. Um, and they're right ahead of it and they're kind of almost laughing at the way other countries are slow marching their way into this and they just find it ridiculous that even the French rugby union came out again last night and said we're not definitely calling this again so Well I had to laugh when I heard I I think maybe it was on Morning Ireland this morning where they were using that line about you know that that gatherings of over a thousand people won't go ahead unless they're of national importance and then somebody (laughs) said well you know obviously they've 
they've lost their chance at the Grand Slam, so it's obviously diminished now. And you're going, what are you talking about? It's got nothing the to do Grand with Grand Slam. Slams. It's nothing, nothing to do, to do with anything. Nothing to do with anything. But that was a mindset they they seem to have. Their sporting body seem to have going into the weekend. And their sporting body should be told to shut up. Like that's idiotic. I'd say they, have, they were, I'd say Monday morning they were told to shut up very clearly by a meeting that they attended. Um, but the the thing about the Super Saturday going to the last weekend in October. So Scotland-Wales goes as mm-hmm. well because the Six Nations don't want to go behind closed doors and the Six Nations want to end their tournament at the same time and trying to keep some semblance of normality. But um, The behind closed doors thing is is so surreal. I, I watched a bit of Juve Inter last mm-hmm. night. Um, played, like the, the biggest game in Italian football, played last night uh, behind closed doors in an empty stadium where you could hear every word coming up off the pitch and... Like, there is a very limited future in that. Mm-hmm. Like, if the idea of sporting bodies, if they're thinking, you know, we can play these games, we can put them on TV, most of our audience is on TV anyway, TV is what pays the money. Uh, there's a very limited future in that. People are just going to go, this is not sport. It, without the crowds there, it's not sport. Well, this this was put to the Italians when uh, the Italian government said, yes, the game could go, the Italy-England game could go ahead, but it would have to be behind closed doors. And aside from your what you've just spoke about there, there's also the question of money mm. and people pay into these games mm. and the Italian Federation would be down an estimated two and a half million euros. That's despite hiring Sadio Olimpico and all the costs that go with that, two and a half million. You could be, the precedent is there for been set. So even if there was an option to play France Ireland behind closed doors, I don't think the French Federation would buy into that because they would lose by a similar number, maybe two and a half to three million euros. So I don't think that's going to happen either. But I think the French government said they'd cover them, Jerry. But at the same, it's the Six Nations are the ones are saying we don't want, yeah. we don't want mm-hmm. to do this. Mm-hmm. We don't because that's not the way. This, our whole thing is about putting people in stadiums. Yeah, but I think there's a real likelihood of domestic tournaments. Like the league, like um, Syria initially, that might end up with games behind closed doors because it's okay rearranging one or two, one one full round and another match in the Six Nations for October Mm -hmm. because the Six Nations enjoys primacy over all other tournaments in the Northern Hemisphere. But what you do with the Pro 14 and the Heineken Champions Cup and the English Premiership and the Top 14? Ultimately, I think there's a very real risk, fear, danger, possibility of games domestic games as such or other games and other tournaments taking place behind closed doors. Like, I don't know how Zebra and Benetton are going to be able to play another home game this season. Mm. You're talking um, about Saracens though, aren't you? I'm Saracens talking about Leicester Saracens. That's, the one, I, that's is, the one I'm really fearful and, and of. Your reporting has indicated that this, there's been signs and nothing is confirmed or solid at the moment, obviously. But there's signs that uh, European rugby are willing to do that. Um, they're willing to get this game played at the, in that, at that so moment. Want, they'll... It's slightly different with the Heineken Champions Cup in that they've now reached the knockout stages. Mm. So there's a certain level of integrity in the fact that all the pool tables have been completed. The seeding's been sorted out on merit. But you'd have to wonder, in four weeks' time, will will the Irish government and health services allow a 50,000 congregation of people in the Aviva Stadium for a quarter-final between Leinster and Saracens? I fear that four weeks is such a long way away that that could end up being behind closed doors, as might a few other games in the Pro 14 and the Heineken Champions Cup and even the Premiership in the Top 14. We, I've got a fear that better get used to it, Mel. It is going to be so surreal. Yep, it Apart is. Apart from anything, you But know. they will want to complete those tournaments, wouldn't they? 
You know what I mean? They would want to play those quarterfinals in the hope that maybe the semi-finals can be played in front of a full house or maybe the final will be, but at least we will have winners and losers at the end of the season. You know what I mean? Rather and than just an asterisk saying incomplete tournament. I, odd and surreal as it might feel, let, let us actually talk about some rugby. Sure. Because it did take place over the mm-hmm. weekend. Where, which one do you want to start with? Do you want to start England? Yeah, Wales? yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and such a physical encounter. Mm. Brutally tough physical mm. encounter, yep. <clears throat> Possibly 33-30 flattered Wales in the end. Mm. That being said, Wales for the last best part of the last 20 years are like a dog with a bone. No matter how far behind they might mm. be, they are never out. They're the most resilient national team in the world, it has to be said. They keep mounting these extraordinary comebacks and they look dead and buried. They were helped by... Um, a yellow card and a red card for England, no doubt about it. But uh, I thought they kept at it and England's physicality in their defence, they're just not playing any rugby in their own half, kicking down and backing their defence to ensnare Wales, who had to come up with one stunning try from the restart, probably the try of the tournament, the one that finished up by Justin Tipperidge. Mm-hmm. But um, you always felt England were going to win that game. Um, and of course, it was clouded by the first red card in six years in the tournament for Manu Tulagi. And Eddie Jones's rather disgraceful response to that when suggesting there was 13 against 16 in the end game and it was a complete rubbish for Tulagi, who launched himself like an extra step missile out of steepling um, George he knew North. himself, Jerry, there yeah. was a red card. Yeah, exactly. He didn't even look for George North to apologise. You know the way man. sometimes the slow motion, you know, it doesn't suit a lot of these incidents, mm-hmm. particularly in rugby. Mm-hmm. If anything, this slow, slow motion took away from him. When you saw it in real time, it was even more scary. It actually made you wince. North, George North could have been seriously injured. It was Jones a definite is, red card. Jones's stick is is fine, I think, in the build-up to games and stuff like that. And even in the aftermath of games, just for, you know, for adding to the gaiety of the nation to mm. a certain mm. extent. But something like this is too serious. Yeah. And to, be, to, be, to be an arsehole about it. And yeah. like that, that was what he was doing, you know. He was disrespecting the game's laws. He was disrespecting the officials. He should get fined for it. He should get pulled up, hauled up. And I think he might get pulled up because he, because he said we're playing against 16 men. That's how they discipline him. And I think they right, will. Yeah. Uh, O'Connell was on BBC the next day just before, before in, in Murrayfield and he just put him away. He just goes, that's a disgraceful comment. It was a red card all day. You need someone like that to stop, to stand up to him. And on the Clive Woodward said the same. And, and put, you, 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 that can't, you can't say those things because... The, the whole thing about the, the focus about the two laggy hit actually took away from the fact that George North really should have come for a head injury assessment and his, he looked a bit, the way he fell and all that and the, the contact glanced him and all that. But this guy was knocked out cold two weeks ago by Gail Fiku, you know, and his history of concussions is harrowing. So, yeah, the focus got away from it. But it, I think what Eddie Jones might be a little bit peeved about and he's, his real inner feelings about this man is that for the second home game in a row, they were three tries up early doors and had the game won and mm. did not go on to register a bonus point. Had they got one or two of those bonus points, they would now be nailed on almost certainties to win this because all they would need would be a bonus point win yeah, over they Italy. Have, they they've have actually, kept it oh, interesting. They've kept the door they? open, yeah. particularly more yeah. so for Ireland, ironically yeah. enough. Because yeah. the next day, France, you know, they were... They suffered a yellow card and a red card as well and they were well behind but they were 21-7 down and they had a penalty in front of the posts and Fabien Galtier sent down this decree to his players on pitch take the three which is an extraordinary thing to do 14 against 15 because a bonus point for France would have made them hot favourites to win this tournament. As it was they took the three and they came up 10 points short instead of 7 points short. Had they t- gone for a try and got a try got a bonus point out of that they would now be very much favourites and you could see Gail Ficou on the pitch imploring looking up at the, bo- the box going pourquoi Pourquoi? He was furious. Mm-hmm. Why are we taking three here? It made no sense. So both France missing out on a losing bonus point and England 
missing out on a winning bonus point, which is both there for them, has left the door ajar for Ireland. They would now have to, admittedly, two bonus point wins would actually do it for Ireland. That sounds extraordinary, I know. It's <laughs> in their hands. Win, but it's in their hands. It is weirdly and, in their hands. And even if they won, if they win, say it does pan out in the order of the fixers as mm. it's meant to, they go to... A, they beat Italy with a bonus point. They go to the top of the table and then they go into the last Saturday night against France knowing that potentially a win, depending on the points margin they, they, they accumulate against Italy and what England then accumulate against Italy and Rome, conceivably they could have the title in their own hands now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, as I say, it, it, is, it is kind of a surreal point to be trying to kind of do tableology uh, with something that is probably not going to sort itself out for another eight well, months. In a, weird, in, in a weird way, it's almost better that it, the whole last round is cancelled and deferred back because if France and Ireland had gone ahead and Ireland had won, you then be coming down to the ridiculous scenario in October of Ireland and, and England both playing Italy in separate weekends and basically one has to match the other score to win the title, yeah. which would have been really unsatisfactory. Yeah. Either way, there's going to be an asterisk alongside this tournament, but that would have been a that double asterisk. That would presumably feed into the decision. Yeah. But you did, know, the, the, that, that they want to preserve the integrity, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. But Ireland's tournament came alive when French tight head Mohamed Hawes clocked James Ritchie mm. in what was just... Basically, a repeat you of the quarterfinal. You, you know, don't see World so Cup much anymore, <laughs> except yeah. And he was, it was, it was, the there was a niggle, and there was, there was, uh, there was a fight, and Richie had a hold of him, and you were once, and the, the referee and the officials tried to look at it a couple of times, going, "Oh, yeah." The, the TMO, I think, it was Brian McNeese, the Irishman. He goes, yeah, "You're gonna have to look at this because this is a clean connection. <laughs> this is a clean left, left, left hook to sweet, the jaw." You know, shot, so yeah. yeah, and there was no way out of it. Was, like, and it, it was. Yeah, he's got a he's got a really interesting history to Montpellier proper. He comes from and how he got to where he is, and you know, survived a kind of a teenage life of crime. And, and uh, but yeah, as soon as a, a, much like yourself, Kevin. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a wily Scottish flanker just grabbed him, and you can't get duped into put it this way. Alwyn Jones had his balls grabbed by a prop, yes. and he didn't he didn't tr- throw a punch because yeah. he, as he said himself, I have 138 tests from my country. I'm not going to get sent off because some idiot does that yeah, to me yeah, in a game yeah. in in a, in this very similar kind of a rumble, you know. That's why I have one slight issue with the red card to Mohamed Awas because James Ritchie ran 20 metres, as he often does. He's always, he, he went looking and he, he actually escalated the whole scuffle mm. and he ha- absolutely deserved a yellow card. But instead you see him smiling as, as Awas has led off the pitch. And I wouldn't mind, but the referee, who I thought was poor, Paul Williams, I thought at one point the penalty count was 11-4 against France. They were getting nothing off him. And he even noted that Richie ran in 20 metres. And then himself and Wayne Barnes and the rest of the officials just completely forgot that Richie had done this. So in the same way that the provocator, in this case, Richie should have got yellow, so should Joe Marler for what he'd done. Because... The player who reacts gets the red card, but what about the player who prompts it all by you know going over the top? And certainly Marler should be cited. I mean, it's kind of amusing and funny in one sense, but I think kids got, are watching this game; they're meant to be setting may, an example. Maybe, maybe cited, maybe not. But I, I think he's got hammered enough, and, uh, and rightly so yeah. because of this. Uh, Alwyn Jones in a room full of men laughing went. I no, thought he was amazing. It was it was a fantastic. I press thought conference. he was amazing. He, what he, a leader. He was like, tell what me, sorry, t- ex- yeah. word exactly what happened to me before I talk about this. And then he goes, and then he he even made sure that he goes, I'm not going to do Joe Marler. He's a nice guy and all that. And he goes, but what he did was what he did, and maybe World Rugby will look at it. And he goes, but I can't even talk to. He turned it into an advantage because he's had. Win Jones has had a really frustrating Six Nations. We talked. We spent a couple of weeks talking about captaincies and all that. Mm-hmm. He couldn't get a word in against uh, when, up against Sex, and he he lost that conversation with the referee when you flip it around. And the same thing happened to him um, in the in the French games, like where he's been 
really frustrated as a experienced captain. So he was like, I'm going to lay it all out here. And People uh, should check out uh, that clip of him because you can hear the the, the hacks sniggering in the background that uh, oh, you got your balls grabbed. And uh, Jones just kind of shut it all down without, you know, just, just by the pure sort of leader of men. You know what he but did? If he, had, his, if, his, he, his, if he his, had reacted... He would get a he gets a red card, and yes. any a lot of players would have reacted by mm. throwing a punch mm. in that situation. Would Marder then have got a yellow? Would that have been overlooked like Richie was? And there was a serious scuffle going on at the time. And mm. if you look at it, Win Jones was talking to Marler, and Marler is you know we know he's a comedian, you know, yeah. and he's very funny. He's a um, but and he's you know as one person put it, just they oh they toured with the lines, they're friends. Or someone goes, well, someone you worked with three years ago grabs your balls <laughs> at, at, a, at a conference, you know. Uh, but he, he but Win Jones was brilliant because he goes, it's interesting. He goes to the journalist. He goes, what would you do in that situation? You know, he goes, Joe's a good bloke. Lots of things happen on a rugby field, but it's difficult as a captain these days because he can't smoke, speak to the ref about anything. And he 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 just he flipped it back and. Yeah, I have to understand all. Oh, they've just lost three games in the bounce. Yep. It was an extremely frustrating moment yeah. and he handled it really well. They're real. Their season's in tatters and uh, he went up and um, dealt That's with it. the thing about the Six Nations. Yeah. You can be Grand Slam champions one year yeah. and you can be fifth the next year if Scotland show up. In the it space of a fortnight. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah. what happened to England. Back-to-back titles under Eddie Jones. Next season, they finished fifth because they lost three matches. You know, if Scotland have a halfway decent Six Nations, one of Ireland, Wales, yes. France or England has the to suffers, finish fifth. Yeah. That's, that shows you how competitive the Six Nations is. Let's give uh, Scotland a bit of, uh, a bit of dap for, for what they did. Yeah, like how, how big was the sending off in the game and how good were Scotland? Huge. Huge. Yeah. Yeah. Massive. Their, their game is based on pace. Everything is about pace. And we, we, we keep hearing about it. Out. Like even Dan McFarland's tried to brought what he's learned from Gregor Townsend Tulster. It's pace, pace, pace. So when a team goes down a number, they just go, we just do exactly what we do on the training pitch. We go numbers, we go pace, and they had a try. They killed the game by half time because they got a try by exploiting France on the outside channels by going wide and getting quick ball. And then they got one straight after resumption. Championship minutes, 14 points either side of half time, game over. And you know, the, the French got a little bit rattled. They showed the fact that they're a young side with a young captain and a lot of young, inexperienced players. But do you know what? It actually might make them a better team in the long run than if they'd swept to a Grand Slam in the first year of this rebuild. They're gonna. This is reinforcing the lessons of the quarterfinal and how important discipline's got to be now from now on for this yeah. French team. It's a big lesson for them to learn and it's better they learn it in the first year of a World Cup cycle than the last year. It's very interesting to see what happens now with Ireland this week in camp. Mm. What do you do, you know? Um, what do they do? They if, the, if the game is off, does everybody go back to their club like tomorrow? I think they might hold them for as long as they can, would they? Or is there a point in holding them for another few days? It's an, it's an odd one, isn't it? Yeah, like, like the, when, pro- the provinces when get the, dicked around enough as it is, Well, you know? yeah, the precinct was set when they, they let them break up, break off early on a Thursday for the long weekend before the uh, before the Italy game, didn't they? They said, they yeah, they have, they did shorten the week. I'd imagine they'd shorten the, the week, keep them camp for a few days and then short send them home on Thursday again, something like that. Who knows? Who knows? But there's no real point in keeping them in situ for the entire week. Well, God, if they have no game until October... They have no particular hold over them. Yeah, that, and then what do Leinster do? Because Leinster's supposed to go to South Africa yeah. for two games. Just before playing Saracens, <laughs> which I'm sure they would have earmarked for their non-frontline players. Of course, yeah. And then I wouldn't be surprised if they'd even left a coach or two at home right. to ready the Leinster team for the Saracens game. But now you're looking at players like Johnny Sexton and all the other frontliners who won't have played for something like five or six weeks before this quarterfinal. But you don't want to be bringing them to South Africa either, I don't think. Do you want to get on a long-haul flight to South Africa right now, do you? Yeah. 
Yeah. Like, remember <laughs> the semi-final Munster played against Racing about three years ago? Yeah. They went to South they Africa for two exact, weeks yeah. just before that semi-final yeah. and they had nothing in their legs for that semi-final. Yeah. So I, I think Leinster will look at that as a lesson and, and, and they would not not be of a mind to emulate. But now they're in a little bit of a quandary because, like I said, all these frontline players won't have played for about, is it about six weeks going into that quarterfinal? In a weird way. It's all so fascinating because you're through the looking glass. Nobody, There's no precedent for any of this. Nobody really knows. Everybody's flying blind to mm-hmm. some extent. Mm-hmm. It's going to make for a really interesting few weeks. Mm-hmm. It is. Gentlemen, thank you very much. One other thing to note over the weekend. Oh. Sean O'Brien made us... Oh, oh yeah. come back first game in For nine or ten months. Yeah, how did he go? Because he played about forty-eight minutes. Didn't yeah, he? yeah, like that, that was always the plan. I think just you know, first game in nine, ten months. Twitter said he did okay, operation. but did yeah. you see it? I heard it physically was he good or? I moved? didn't see it. But they didn't have that game on on Friday night. Did the what are your sources? What are your sources tell you over there? I hear he's very happy with how it went. Yeah, yeah, I hear he's very happy with how it went, which is great. Yeah, so that's is. one positive note, and presumably the Premiership will carry on for a while longer yet as well. So there's one Irish man, and we get a bit of rugby. Bring back Shawnee, <laughs> steady, gents. Thanks very much. We'll talk to you again. Touchdown! Flight EI four nine six four, bringing the very first Irish side to the European Championship finals. It was a great feeling to be part of it all. Part of something that's very special because you, as a squad, are now the first Irish team ever to qualify for a European Championship. It's the first time I've done anything like this. <laughs> and it's, it's so strange, and I'm totally enjoying myself. We have a guest, Pat. We do. We do. We have Ross Whitaker, a documentarian... Ireland's foremost sports documentarian, that's what I'm saying, and unless anybody wants to come to me and I'd say, say something. I'd say a few people different. will come to you. Uh, you have the first of a two-parter coming on TV tonight called The Boys in Green. That's right. Which is, I'll let you say it in a nutshell rather than me. Well, it's kind of looking at that era uh, that Jack Charlton was the manager of Ireland and looking at Ireland through those times from about 86 when he became manager up to 95 mm. when he ultimately was sacked by the FAI um, funny enough, I've been really interested in that time anyway. And there's a, there's a few docs or ideas I have that's, that are from that time because it just feels like a very pivotal time in Irish history. Mm. And uh, I suppose there was nothing more in the public's imagination or at the forefront of their mind at that time than the Irish team, you know, with Euro 88, Italia 90, USA 94. So I was, I was delighted to be... It's been done by a company called Loose Horse mm. Productions who've done tons of, of great docs. And uh, when they asked me to direct it, I was delighted because it's right up my street. It's right up your street. Uh, I, I figure you're more or less the same age as us. Maybe a few years younger. Well, okay. <laughs> so, no, no, so, what, more, so no, I'm joking. What, what, joking. what age were you for Italian 90? Uh, <laughs> 15. There you go. Well, you're a yeah. bit older than me then. Oh, Smart sure. <laughs> <laughs> Um So, and it's funny, we were just talking about this earlier that that... When I watch something like this, like I have a real visceral memory. I, I was I was twelve for Italian ninety. I have a visceral memory of little darts, little bits and pieces of it that I go, oh my god, that was. And you're exactly right. Pivotal is the word. You know, a, a moment of of my childhood, a moment of my early years that I that I, that will never leave me. You know, and an Italian ninety will will never leave an awful lot of people. But we were just saying 
earlier that um, for a generation that are even, let's say, 10 years younger than me, let's say somebody who's 31 now, um, all of this must must nearly feel like, you know, footage of the Beatles or whatever. You know, be, and, and people of our generation kind of can overestimate that sometimes watching something like this or underestimate that because we can kind of go, actually, we know all of this. But I'd say for people younger than us, it is just you're looking at it going, hang on, how crazy was was this country at the time? Yeah, and I mean, I feel it's a huge privilege to have lived through that time. Mm. You know, to to being, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 during Italian night, it wouldn't have been great to be 25 and yeah. going there. You yeah. know what I mean? That would have been incredible. But yeah, I think the people who are a little bit younger and didn't live through that time maybe don't realise how bad Ireland was as well. Like you'll remember growing up in the 80s, and it was just all bad news. Mm. There was so much bad news. It was all you heard about was recession, church, IRA. Those are the things. Emigration. That was on the fourth. That was at the, the tip of everyone's tongue. That was in every newscast. So when something positive started happening around the football team, everyone got on board. And we had a singularity of focus then as well in terms of, you know, the amount of television channels we had, the fewer distractions that we had. That meant that something successful for us became something huge. Mm. And it, I think it was pivotal for Ireland um, in terms of confidence. And it was probably the main thing, along with a few other things, like the success of U2, I think of certain movies, like The Commitments, um, Riverdance, and uh, the Eurovision Song Contest wins that maybe started making us think a little bit differently about who we were. But there was no, nothing more important in that respect than the football team, I think. There's a couple of parts in it, like uh, I think it's Lise Hand who points this out at one point um, when she's talking about the flag, that this was the first time that something had happened in the country where people could get the tricolour and go out and wave it and there was no political statement behind it. It was as pure and simple as I'm supporting Ireland. It was, which was kind of mind-blowing to look back on. Yeah, well, we were being proud to be Irish but, and, but then the second part of that was it was now okay to be proud to be Irish because mm. I remember playing for sports teams as a teenager and going to England to play some friendly match or some little tour or something like that and people saying, well, don't talk too much in public. Don't let people hear your accent. Being Irish in England is a really negative thing uh, for obvious reasons. So that started to all fall away then and now we were waving our flag and we were able to represent ourselves to the world. We were able to go to Germany and go to Italy and kind of show who we were and have people think about Ireland in a different way. And I don't know how conscious, I think there was an element of consciousness to that. And probably because we were able to um, portray ourselves in a kind of opposite way to the English fans who were so reviled at the time and who were going and causing trouble. And we played against England in 88 and we played against England in 1990. So, and there was a huge amount of trouble in um, in Sardinia, for instance, but no Irish fans were involved. And we just kind of loved that. <laughs> you know, we, you know, we we took great, you know, oh, a funny kind of pride in, in not being them, and uh, I think um, it's still the case. Absolutely, still the but case. I, but I, you know, I was at the at the Euros in in France in 2016, and I like a different era, totally different, you know, different landscape. Obviously, you know, the the, the amount of what people remember from, from that Euros is the amount of stuff that went viral and the stuff that w was played out on social media. And yet to be there, your main, the, the sort of the main thrust of being an Ireland supporter was that you weren't an England supporter, you yeah. know, that, yeah. that, and that we were, uh, you know, you were making it as fun as you possibly could be 
almost not even to have the fun, but to counterpoint the the thuckery the or the the arsiness of the of the people that we weren't, you know. But it, it amazes me because like everyone knows someone with it, that who has had a few drinks and kind of you know sometimes can lose control a little bit. But the self policing aspect of it, I think, is is amazing because if someone had someone like that in their group. They were they were very uh, conscious of making sure that nothing ever happened with them because you know that that would in mm. some way besmirch mm. our reputation. Another thing that's mentioned in the doc, and I remember it very well at the time, is how there would be articles about Irish fans in English newspapers mm. about look at these people and how they <laughs> act. And we used to take those articles and and kind of point to them and think like, oh look, that's us. You know what I mean? So I. I th- we were very conscious about that how we were being portrayed. Exactly, though it feeds in exactly to the to the insularity and the smallness that 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 we were. You know, at that time, you know, people didn't didn't leave the island to come back. If they were leaving, they were going to work, or if they were leaving, they were emigrating. Like, you know, people didn't really travel. And like, this isn't the fifties. It isn't the forties. This is in our lifetime. This is when we were kids. Yeah, it's it's true. And and not only did we not really go anywhere, no one really ever came to us. You know, I remember like Springsteen playing in Ireland and it was, there had been nothing like this for loads of years before or after. It was just like that time when Bruce Springsteen came to Ireland. Do you know what I mean? Or that time when the Pope came to Ireland and there was nothing else. Now every week, there's some massive concert that costs 100 euro to go to. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so we were very much on the periphery and we, we just probably hadn't taken our place in the world in the way that we, we probably feel like we have now. Um, and, I, and again, coming back to what we were talking about at the beginning, I think for, you know, hopefully for anyone that's a little bit younger than us to watch that, they'll, you know, that will seem significant to them that, you know, things were so different and it wasn't that long ago. It's the thing because um, we can see the seeds being sown for the fans that we currently have that we're, they're basically walking memes going around to championships at the moment but it's also an extraordinary time capsule for some of the stuff that's going on there's a brilliant I think it happens twice actually maybe over the two episodes because we'll come to the second episode in a minute where Jack Charlton has been interviewed by George Hamilton gives him a considered answer and then puffs on his cigar and blows smoke pretty much into George, George Hamilton's face. <laughs> and then there's the footage of the entire squad being on the Late Late Show singing The Boys in Green. Like, there's just stuff that doesn't exist these days and that you you can scarcely imagine ever existed. There's so many things in it, I think, that speak to that for me. And One of them is, like, just going and meeting all these footballers and interviewing them those kinds of footballers don't even exist anymore. You know, when when this generation of footballers are are talking about their careers in 20 years' time, they won't have the kind of insight that these players have. You know, and that's kind of a time capsule in itself. You're a much different kind of person to have survived in football, I think, in the the 70s and 80s. You know, there were drinkers. A lot of them had gone, particularly in the Irish team, had, had almost developed quite late. Like you think of someone like Cascarino came through quite late, Townsend. Uh, even John Aldridge, like probably the, the second half of his 20s is when, really when he emerged and, and, and also was playing for Ireland and he scored tons of goals in the 30s as well. So th- it, it, there's a lot of things in the doc, I think, that are very specific to that time. Um, and one of the interesting things about Jack, I'm probably veering off your question now, uh, but one is that he always referred to Ireland as home. So whenever he was interviewed by the likes of George mm-hmm. Hampton after those games, and he'd say, like, have you any message for the people of Ireland? He would say, like, something about the people back home mm. and then when there was uh, trouble which you know is, is part of the second episode um, on the 16th uh, at Lansdowne Road I think that was one of the things that really hurt him was that like 
we don't do this in Ireland. You know, this doesn't happen here. And I, I feel like, you know, Ireland had sort of become a quasi home from then or, or how he thought of himself within football. I was completely struck by that because you're, you're dead right. Uh, Stephen Gerrard got abuse last week um, of many fans because he spoke about his team as them, basically. And there was a, uh, shortly after Ireland beat Italy in USA 94, Jack was doing an interview by the side of the pitch and he turned and he said, I can't, you know, it's amazing that we won. And he kind of turned to who was interviewing him and said, we've never beaten Italy before, have we? Mm-hmm. And I was struck by, oh, look at all the wees that were in there. Like he completely became one of us. He did. And I think that that's one of the things I rediscovered in doing this. And probably somewhere in the back of my mind, I knew it. But he was the most famous person in Ireland. Mm. Do you know what I mean? He was the most popular person in Ireland. If he was fishing off a bridge in Mayo, there'd be a few hundred people watching him. Mm. Like, you know, it, it, there was no one in Ireland more loved or more famous than him. And in a funny way, because like everything, like a lot of things in life and a lot of things in sport in particular, it rarely ends well. I think that those last kind of year of his kind of managerial career for Ireland kind of, I suppose, took a little bit of the luster off it and and maybe affected his legacy a little bit. So it's great to kind of at this remove. And I think, you know, sometimes you wonder, why do you go back to these stories? But you can only understand them better with a bit of time in between. At a remove, we can look back at it and think like, wow, it's amazing what Jack did and and how he played a part in in kind of changing a country or, or changing the way we looked at ourselves. Something like this takes a long time to make and you obviously end up leaving stuff out, uh, especially, I mean, I always find when I'm doing historical pieces, you know, you end up going down rabbit holes, you end up going through archives and finding loads of stuff that you go, oh man, this is really fascinating. And you spend a half a day and you go, okay, that can't actually go in the piece that I'm doing. Yeah. And did you find out loads of stuff like that? Or did you have to leave a load of stuff out? Yeah, well, we spent about six months kind of working on it and you could have spent six years working on it for all the art. I think it must be like, an, it gives me a certain type of almost sadness now. It must be one of the best documented periods of Irish sport. Mm. Like it, it turns out that people were always following them around with cameras. There are, there was footage shot on film. There's probably a few years of people following them on 16 millimeter film that, you know, would have to be developed again and, and so on and so forth. So we've done the best we can in the time that we have, but like there's so much footage of that era. It, you know, and that I suppose also, it's interesting because there aren't that many things from that time where, there were so many, ca- like now there's a camera on everything yes. all the time. Yeah. But actually, funnily enough, they, the Irish team had cameras on the whole time, which gives you a huge amount of archive to work with. But as you say, means you leave loads of stuff out. But, and, and it's funny you say that. There's cameras on everything at the time. And yet, professional sports people are at such a remove now. You know, like the, the, the footage, even little snippets of footage of like Frank Stapleton shouting up at the lads in the stadium, you'll go for a few drinks tonight. Like, mm. you know, it, it's almost unthinkable that you would find a kind of a, a lost tape of Seamus Coleman saying that to, to uh, Irish fans after a game now. You know, not because, you know, they're Seamus Coleman's an arsehole or anything like that, just because they're at such a remove. Yeah. From from people at this stage. Yeah, and, and there's tons of footage of them drinking, yeah. like after matches and so on. Like we actually had to start taking some of it out because like there's too much drinking in this documentary. Do you know what I mean? It's because they would be out with the fans, having a few drinks, not concerned mm. if there was a camera there. That's just the way we live our lives. Mm. 
And one of the things that blew my mind is a line in the doc, and sometimes you hate to say these things because you hope people will just discover it as they see it, but is Ronnie Whelan talking about, you know, after the Dutch game yeah. and saying, well, you know, I suppose the the week of playing three matches and drinking after all of them just took, us out, took it out of us yeah. in the yeah. end. And you're thinking, well, of course it did. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's like we beat England, we celebrated. A few days later, we, you know, we... Drew with the Russians, oh, we celebrated that. And then, of course, we had nothing in the legs for the Dutch game. Otherwise, we might have won it, you know. <laughs> I don't think the Dutch were out drinking after every game. I don't want to um, oversimplify. It's a two-part documentary. The first part is incredibly upbeat and you can see the country turning and becoming oh, this this positive being uh, following the team like to Italian 19 all. The second part of the documentary, which is on following Monday night, um, is kind of like the dark half, really. And... Like there's parts in it that you don't really that you forget or that I in a way had almost blanked out of my mind. Alan McLaughlin getting death threats shortly after his goal in Windsor Park and kind of centrepiece of the whole thing in a way is the Combat 18 rights in Lansdowne Road. And you have amazing footage actually of Jack Charlton um, out in a pitch grabbing a guy by the lapels and screaming in his face to go home. It's again, it's something that um, we've almost it almost seems like it happened on another planet in a way, but it it happened here and it was so real. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's not really in the years, I suppose, you know what I mean? Even though sometimes I suppose there's parts of it that might feel like it is with the music and the, and the footage yeah. and so on and so forth. But I suppose you're trying to um, look at it from a 30-year distance and trying to understand it in a slightly different way. And... and the riot actually was one of the, the things that kickstarted this project in the first place. It's 25 years ago, as you remember, a few weeks ago. And that was sort of the interest point of, of the commissioning editors and RTE, Cullum and Sean and, and Cormac, the producer, of should we be looking at that? And that was how this whole project started. Right. So, um, And then it was like, well, it's the 30th year of Italian 90 as well. But, but it was like, can we explore the riots, can we explore the English-Irish relationship a little bit in this documentary series as well? So in episode two, with that being a part of it, it felt like that was the place to do it and, and talk a little bit about, say, the granny rule and this even notion that an Englishman was at the centre of all this Irish change, you know, and, and a lot of English-born players were playing for Ireland and but in some ways that was the most natural thing in the world, but it, it's, it still was strange. And it was strange, I think, for English fans sometimes to, to see people winning for Ireland and then speaking in English accents afterwards in interviews. So I just thought it was quite an interesting area to look into in the second episode because um, you start realising there are so many elements of that, that, that sort of last four years, including the Northern Ireland game, including things like those death threats, you know, the, the matches against England home and away. I mean, w- one of the things that was a revelation to me was when Jack took Ireland to Wembley for the first time um, in the qualifiers for 92 which I, I remember that game so well. Me too, absolutely yeah. pounded them. It was I'm just stunning, them. you know. Um, but how Jack was actually treated by the fans, the English fans at that game. And it, all, it almost made him into kind of a, a person of no country. Do you know what I mean? You go to, mm. to Wembley where you won the World Cup and the fans are abusing you and, and then you go to Ireland and, well, you're not quite Irish either. So it just felt like that that was kind of quite a rich area to look at in, in the second episode while, I suppose, telling the story of, of, of the last four years of it. It's uh, fascinating stuff. We've seen it uh, and uh, people should get stuck into it tonight and, and next Monday. It's uh, The Boys in Green. Uh, so Marty and Ross Whitaker. thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that's going to do it. Thank you to you, Pat. 
Uh, thanks to Gav and Jerry who were in earlier on and thanks to Declan behind the desk and we will see everybody next week. Take it easy, folks. <laughs>